the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that may, you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold him fast. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The word of the Lord. So it really is Deuteronomy. <laughs> Deuteronomy, I suppose, is uh, not really anybody's go-to preaching book, which in a strange way is, is rather funny because the whole book is a sermon itself. It's uh, often attributed to Moses as his valedictory words to the people of Israel as they make their way out of the wilderness and into the promised land. These, this is it. These are the words that Moses wants to impart to these people after 40 years of travel and hardship. These are some words that they are to go into the promised land with. Transitionary words. Most scholars believe that Moses took for his text the the great Shema, these words we shared with the children a moment ago, you know them well. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. <laughs> the Shema. You know, it's a good Utah sermon. Many refer to Deuteronomy as the Sermon on the Plains of Moab. <laughs> Can you picture it? Red rock, and box canyons, high plateaus, arches, perhaps. And there comes Moses unclipping his bike helmet. Forty-year <laughs> growth, full beard just off the Slick Rock Trail. Maybe not quite like that, but he has been out there in the desert a long time. And now he's got a word, a word for his people, for God's people. 
People, it seems, are often in need of a word at the intersections of life. Eugene Peterson says that Deuteronomy occupies a strategic place in our understanding of what, it, what goes into being the people of God. He goes on to say, after long training, 40 years, the people are addressed by Moses as if they are capable of doing what they have been created and saved to do, to live as the people of God in the promised land of God, to live holy lives, to live the creation, salvation, revolution, he calls it. It's taken them a long time to grow up. They are now poised at the threshold of maturity and called to love, to love the Lord your God with all that you are, for love is our most mature act as human beings, he says. This, I think, is a sermon. For the day that you walk your child up to that kindergarten door and you say goodbye on that very first day of school, it's a sermon for when she goes away to sleep away camp for the very first time. Or that day when you stand in the door of your son's college dorm room and you say, I guess this is it. We'll see you at Christmas. Then you go out and celebrate with like milkshakes or something. (laughs) What a great day. (laughs) This is the the sermon. This is the word for when it comes time for that father-daughter dance at her wedding. It's the sermon in the midnight hour when you're deciding whether or not to take that new position that's going to change everything in your life. It's also that sermon when you realize that you can no longer run an eight-minute mile, and you probably never will again. Jesse's going on eight minutes. That's like a walk, right? No, it's not. Life changes, and there are these intersections, these hard choices that come our way, and this is the word for those moments. You know, Cindy and I, we, we've been talking often these days about the time to come, because while you are a church in transition, we are a, a couple in transition, wondering what's to come, what is next, and you know, never in our 40 years have we had a conversation that begins with the line, I don't think I'm going to work anymore. 40 years. It's always been something like, well, I think there's this other opportunity maybe we should look into, and what if we moved there? What if we did that? Those kinds of lines. But now I feel a little bit like Moses out there on the plains of Moab, east of the river, wondering what might be out there on the horizon. All these years, it's been about this kind of one thing of, you know, moving forward, doing this and that, and now facing a decision in it kind of harder than I thought it would be to think about not working, really? <laughs> Some of you have already done this. So this week I actually wrote an email I've never written before requesting to be moved to what they call honorably retired. It sounds like a military kind of status. <laughs> honorably retired from the PCUSA, our denomination when the next pastor arrives here at Mount O. And I know, you know, who retires at 39 years old? I, you know, <laughs> you know, it's a strange thing to me too. I, you know. 
Yeah, wasn't I just going through all the steps for ordination? <laughs> Didn't I just take that first job out of seminary? And so this is the sermon for, for that place in life, those transitions, those intersections we all find our pla- ourselves in. Days of hard choices. It really is the Utah sermon. Maybe we need a, a Deuteronomy the most at those times. Deuteronomy, we know, it, it gets its kind of name from its very meaning for deutero, which means two or second, onomy, which we know means law or word, so it's the second word or the second law or second reading of the word of God. And so Moses is out there on the plains of Moab and he's saying, you need to hear this again. One more time, here it is at this important juncture in your life. I'm bringing this word now to you. These are the words. That's Deuteronomy 1.1 starts with, these are the words. And Moses launches into it the second time that they've heard all this. Deuteronomy's best meaning then is simply repeated words. The words that need to be repeated in all the hard choices of life. And it's a good name. Because this is the book that keeps popping up in Israel's history. 500 years after Moses was out there on the plains of Moab preaching, a scroll was discovered in the the rubble of the Jerusalem temple. Most think it had been lost from the life of Israel some 300 years before. The words had been long forgotten, and the the life of, of Israel had morphed without the words. They had forgotten who they were. And the welfare of the of the people was reflected by this reality that they no longer were established around these words. The scroll that was unearthed on On that day in Jerusalem, Deuteronomy, you can believe it. (laughs) Moses' sermon from the plains of Moab, the words that need to be repeated. And so 2 Kings, you know, tells the whole kind of gory, almost sordid saga of what happens. About how Josiah becomes the king when he's only eight years old. After his father Ammon was killed in a very bloody palace coup. Josiah, however, survives all that, and they quickly make him king, and they put him on a throne, and his feet don't even reach the floor. He's such a little boy, and he's the king, the youngest ever to sit on the throne of Judah. He would reign for 32 years. All this is like 600 years before Jesus was born. This is a time that historians often talk of like towards the the tail end of the Iron Age. Ancient Rome was beginning to rise. Scholars like to note that violence launched Josiah's reign and violence ended his reign. He dies in the Battle of Megiddo. But he has those 32 years. And it's a stunning time for the people of God mostly because of Deuteronomy. Josiah inherited a political and moral travesty of a nation. His grandfather was Manasseh, 
And he may have been the worst king that Judah had ever experienced over a 55-year period. Assyria was the dominant power of the world in those days. For over 300 years, they ruled with an iron fist. Maybe it's, that's why they call it the Iron Age. I don't know. But they were, a, they were a, kind of a cruel power, bringing a, spirit, a dark spiritual sort of sorcery, black magic to the world, filled with all kinds of, of idols and statuary. Uh, even child sacrifice was a part of Assyria's kind of weird spiritual life. And so Manasseh, king of Judah, fell in line with Assyria and almost reveled in what they were doing and, and aligned himself with them. He imported Assyrian shrines. He set them up in Solomon's beautiful temple in Jerusalem. It was a spiritual nightmare for the people of God. The covenant with Moses was, was long gone. I mean, it was even not on their radar anymore and, Ammon, Manasseh's son, was really no better, although his reign was only for a few years before he was killed. So he continued on with all this black sorcery, and Israel was struggling greatly. You know, curious that nobody names their children Manasseh or Ammon. Haven't run into that yet. But Josiah, yes. Josiah, a name that simply means Jehovah has healed. God has fixed it. <laughs> or God is reforming us as the people of God. We do see, sometimes see Josiahs around today. We even got a granddaughter, Josie. Look out, world, she's going to fix some things. <laughs> so we get an eight-year-old king, Josiah. And we don't know much about how an eight-year-old governed the nation Second Chronicles, in that great historical record, reports that at age 16, that Josiah was uh, seeking the God of his ancestor David. He was kind of being mentored by David over the ages. By the time he was 20, Josiah was acting as king, mostly on his own. And he began to clean up the mess from his grandfather and father removing from the countryside all those shrines of Assyria, cleansing the temple. At 26, Hilkiah, the high priest, was making Josiah's extensive repairs on Solomon's temple and finds the scroll. The book of the law, we read, the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Deuteronomy found it. Words that are worth repeating. And you know how the story goes. From there, the scroll is unread, un, un, unraveled and it's read to Josiah. He immediately embraced it as his own. This was going to be his game plan, his script for bringing Israel back, completing this reform. Josiah hears these words and goes, I knew it. I knew I was on the right track. Let's, we're doing this. He didn't really say that, but trust me, he thought it. <laughs> That's what was, he's thinking about, I'm doing the right thing here. It was a defining moment for him and for Israel. These were the words that he was going to base the community of God upon. Couldn't have been simple young, for young Josiah. 
Maybe he came to the end of this sermon, chapter 30, the section we read, verse 11, and he finds there a deep resolve to continue on with this reform of the people. And he hears that sermon spoken years before, that this is not too difficult for you. This is not beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven. It's not out to sea. No, the word is is very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may obey it. Emerson once explained that it's that which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts that will determine our life and our character. Therefore, he said, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we were worshiping we are becoming. Josiah wanted to change all that. Moses wanted to be sure that going forward the people would would go forward forming their character and their life with a good imagination of who God is. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. And that spoke to Josiah as he pulled Israel away from all its little gods with his great work of reform. That hard choice to change the life of the people, to worship now the living God, the singular living God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to worship him and him alone. Tim Keller has a great little paragraph in his book, Counterfeit Gods. And he speaks about all of this. He says that idolatry is not just failure to obey God. It is is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied, he says, by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. Turning from idols, he says, is not less than those two things, but it is more. It is more setting the mind and heart on things above where Christ is. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And it means appreciation and rejoicing and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails worship, joyful worship, a a sense of God's reality in prayer. Jesus must become, I like this part, Jesus must become beautiful in your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods if you uproot your idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in your heart, the idol grows back. The word is nearer than you think, not out to sea, but it's right here, in your mouths, in our hearts. Jesus, when he came, he was sent into this world. He went everywhere and Usually the first thing that was said or he said was the kingdom of God is near. The word was made flesh and came among us and the kingdom of God is near to you. It's not too difficult or out of reach. Then we let Jesus become more beautiful in our imagination. The possibilities. 
Deuteronomy. It's a word repeated again and again. It's like pulling your old wedding vows out of the back of the album, reading them again and again. I set today before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God. Walk in obedience. Keep his commands. You will live and increase. God will bless the land that you are entering. You may kiss the bride. It's a treaty that Moses is making with the people of God there. This is how it will go well for you in the land. It's like an ancient tribal treaty. People groups trying to find peace with one another striking a promise with each other that will last and will provide a structure for goodness to happen in their lives. And Josiah, he, he hears all this and he says, that's it. That's the treaty. That's the promise, the covenant that we are to live under. A lost relationship that was in so much need of renewal and Josiah says, this is, this is it. These are the words we need to hear again. That life only has quality and beauty when it's in covenant with God. And so he realized that it had all been set before them once, but it had been long forgotten, buried in the rubble and the destruction of their lives. But it's the word that, that we need to hear again and again. A word to be reclaimed, to choose again, or maybe even for the first time, this is the word. This is the covenant. You know, it's Peter having destroyed his relationship with Jesus, turning away, denying him those three times at the cross. Just buried Jesus in the rubble of his own life. Yet Jesus, victorious over death, comes again to Peter, a fragment of the man he had been. And three times he... He brings him the word, the word in the flesh, speaks to him, and Peter, do you love me? A new covenant. The word comes to Peter again, and it's Deuteronomy all over again. This word being given and repeated, Peter takes it in like Josiah. He says, yes, Lord, you know, you know I love you. Covenant, promise, Treaty, trust. Moses says, choose life. <laughs> choose life that you may love the Lord, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. You know, theologians would want us to know that when we read Deuteronomy, that God sees us as these free moral agents, not as conscripts. Calvin comes along all those years long and then longer. Then we Presbyterians start showing up and we're saying, well, no, it's really God, the initiator. You know, God does it all. God, you know, God acts. True. Grace is always God's gracious action toward us, but we still choose. We still act. We still choose life, Moses wants us to know. Augustine would say that God chooses you, but yet you choose to respond. The truth is we are always in relationship with God, whether we are far away or we are very near. 
And sometimes, especially at the intersections of life, we need to hear that word again. We need a Deuteronomy in our own soul to come again, choose God right back. I was reading this week about uh, the, the good ship Arbella in 1630 that was you know, bringing pilgrims to the new world as they approached the shores of New England and the Massachusetts Bay Colony, their captain, their leader, John Winthrop, looks out over those people on board the ship on that day as they approached land, saw the apprehension in their eyes and the fear at this new intersection in their lives. So what does he do? Gives a sermon, of course. (laughs) He speaks to them. And where does he go for his words? Deuteronomy, of course, right? It's good at all the intersections of life. Winthrop reminds his shipmates of their covenant with God. And so he says, right out of our text today, therefore let us choose life, that we and our seed may live by obeying his voice, by cleaving unto him, for he is our life and our prosperity. What landfall are you about to make? What intersection of life are are you approaching? What hard choice is right there? What rubble needs to be cleared away to discover that the word that has always been there, but maybe it's been buried for too long, I was also reading this week about the uh, old Jewish wedding toast, Hohayim, to life, right? To life. Do you know that it has its origins, of course, uh, in, the, in the idea that wine brings secrets out? We knew that, right? <laughs> we always got to be careful, right? Say too much. <laughs> and so, friends would connect on a deeper level as they would toast to life. But it also pointed ahead to a day when the Messiah would come and that there would be a grand feast and at the conclusion of the feast there would be a toast, l'chaim, to life with the wine that God had kept hidden for this special occasion from the dawn of all creation. The life that was to come The word would become flesh and dwell among us. And Jesus, who says, I am the resurrection and the life. The life would come to toast. It's a good Utah sermon. (laughs) Here we are out here near the plains of Moab. Not very far. Not at all out of reach. The word of God, the word that needs to be repeated again and again in all the hard choices of life. That word that comes to us and just simply says, Lahayim, choose life. For you indeed are capable of doing what you have been created and saved to do, to live as the people of God, to live holy lives. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Let's pray. 
Gracious and almighty God, we are so thankful that you have remembered us. You are never far off. In fact, you are quite near, within our reach, always in Jesus Christ our Lord, the life. Be in the, the quiet of each of our hearts as we reach out for you. Meet us there, God, in all the intersections of our lives. With the life, the life abundant, who is Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.